Hello and welcome to the Coffee House Questions podcast. I am Ryan Polly. I am really excited to be discussing a certain specific topic with you guys today for two reasons. One, I've just been gone on the road so much and I pre-recorded a few shows. I'm excited just to be sitting down in front of this microphone again. But secondly, there have been a few issues that have come up from students that all revolve around the same issue. And that is understanding how to ask for good evidence, how to ask good questions when presented with claims that go against scripture. And so this initially came up in a Instagram message that I got from a high school student where uh, the claim was made that there are transgenders in the Bible. And this claim upset the student. And they didn't know how to respond. And so we're going to look at that, but we're also going to look at it as far as other claims that I've been dealing with. One that I just put out in some YouTube videos, which you can find on my YouTube channel, Ryan Polly, on the claim that Jesus is just a recycled pagan myth. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, but broader idea of understanding how to ask good questions and responding to these claims that seem to go against Christianity. Now, before we do, I want to take a little bit of time and I want to encourage you with what has been happening recently uh, with some of the speaking events that I've had. And so if you're a youth pastor or leader or parent, hopefully this is an encouragement. If you're a student, keep doing what you're doing. And it's simply this. In the last few weeks, I have been to three different camps or retreats four different sessions. And so I was at a junior high session at Alpine Camp with 250 junior high students. I was at a high school session at Alpine Camp as well the next week with about 230 high school students. Right as soon as I left from that, I went to an upper elementary retreat with third to sixth graders. In fact, one second grader there. And then I went back to Hume Lake for my second time this summer, which again, speaking to a few hundred high school students. So I started off at the junior high camp where I gave a talk on does God exist? Then why does God allow evil? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is Jesus the only way? And then science versus faith. Five sessions over the course of four days. I also hosted two open Q&A sessions that ended up going four hours total, two hours each. The next week I went back with high school students. I did the same five sessions, but I started off with an atheist role play. In that high school session, I was there for six days. We had four open Q&A sessions that ended up going eight and a half hours total. And what was so cool is that during the third Q&A session, after six hours of open Q&A, the student said, hey, tomorrow's the last one. Can you come back 30 minutes early? Can you come 30 minutes early so we can have an extra 30 minutes of Q&A because two hours is not enough. Then I went to Hume Lake, or sorry, then I went to the elementary camp where we ended up finishing three of the four sessions. I did a session on what is truth, another session on uh, why is truth important. The third session was, is the resurrection true? And then the last session was, is the Bible true? And after the last three sessions, three of the four sessions, we hosted open Q&A again, where students turned in, these elementary students turned in over 50 questions, I think on paper and asked live questions during the Q&A where we had about an hour total, about 20 or so minutes after each one of those sessions. And then again, after Hume Lake, where I spoke to the leaders on tactics and defending your faith, then the students on uh, the truth about truth, the nature of truth, how to respond to the relativistic culture we live in, and then why does God allow evil? I went back there, I hosted another Q&A with those students, and that Q&A had about 70 students show up where we discussed their questions for about two hours. 
And so what I want to say as an encouragement is two things. One, as I always talk about on this show, is that high school students and students in general have a lot of questions. And we as parents and youth leaders and teachers need to be ready to answer those questions. If we're not ready, then that's fine. Say you're not and find good answers. Message me or go to all the recommendations that I put on my website and find those answers. But we should not be limiting our students in their ability to openly ask good questions. Because again, if we want them to be seekers of truth, and if we truly believe that Jesus is the truth, then that search for truth is going to lead them to Jesus. And that's what we want. We should not be limiting their questions. We should not be stopping their questions. We should not be ignoring them. We should be open to their questions. And it was so cool because even at the elementary camp, they had a box. It was a Q&A box where students could write questions on paper and drop it in the box. And this is where they turned in over 50 questions. And I think this is something that I, well, is something that I have in my classroom. And I think it's also something that we should have pretty much in every youth ministry. It's just a place for students to drop their questions and be able to address them from time to time. I think it's great when I talk to some of these youth leaders that spend maybe a month or two and go through some important questions that these students have. But maybe there's a chance, like what I do in my classroom, where at the beginning of each day, I start with two minutes answering one of their questions. What if we did this in youth ministry? What if we did this in the home? Maybe at dinner once a week, or maybe each night where you start and just answer one quick question that your students have or that your kids have and respond to that or help them find answers. Or maybe at youth ministry, open up in your opening announcements and respond to a quick question that the students have, again, always making it available for them to ask. And so that's the first thing that was so encouraging is that these students sat through hours and hours and hours of question time, where they genuinely wanted to know more about Christianity and how to reconcile their faith with the culture around them. And that was just so encouraging to me. I loved it. And this doesn't count all the times I sat there during uh, ropes course and free time at pool time and all the different times at lunch and everything that they came up and asked those questions. The second encouragement I would have is this. I got done just speaking at Hume Lake. Uh, if you're listening, hey, thanks for listening to the show uh, after I gave it to you. But uh, one of the pastors said, man, I'm the elementary pastor, but I would love to talk to the high school pastor and get him interested in this and maybe bring you out to our church. And I just encouraged him. I said, look, I just came from an upper elementary camp, third to sixth grade. And not only did they get it, but they were able to explain it. And as I just said, they had a lot of questions that they wanted to dive deeper. And so if you're like worried, I often have people tell me, wow, you do this kind of stuff with high school students? Yeah, with junior high and now with upper elementary, myself as well. And these kids want it. They desired it. They had so much fun. They didn't want to go home at the end of three days. And so my encouragement, the second one to you is simply this. Let's have this time where we can give our students the reasons for what they believe. Yes, there's a time to teach them the what and the what and the what, and we teach them all those things, but there comes a time where they start asking those questions and they want the why. Why do we believe this? How can we actually know that this is true? And why does this matter to my life? And man, what I saw, even as low as third grade, and I know it can go lower, but I've done it the low as third grade now, they loved it. And so hopefully that is an encouragement to you with your students or your kids. 
Now, a couple things before we jump into our topic uh, in the future uh, that you can know about is that on July 27th, I will be doing an interview on the Excellent Mindset podcast. This is going to be a different kind of setting for me, uh, but we are going to be discussing kind of what I do and how I go approach uh, the area of apologetics. I will be preaching at For His Glory Community Church on July 28th, so I would invite you to come. The service starts at 9 o'clock. It's in Fullerton. I will be speaking on Revelation 3, 14 to 22, the Church of Laodicea there in the book Revelation. On August 3rd, I will be doing a live Facebook interview, but also we'll be posting it on the podcast with Tim Stratton. We are actually going to be discussing the debate between Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism. Molinism, the one that most people don't know about, is going to be kind of the focus where I have a lot of questions. I would consider myself a Molinist, but I have a lot of questions of how to reconcile that or how it fits with those other views. And so that's going to be the topic there. I do have a few more closed events at Hume Lake and Forest Glory High School students and all that kind of stuff. You can find my full calendar on the Facebook page. Uh, but then finally, I want to encourage you, uh, Rethink Apologetic Student Conference. If you sign up before August 3rd for Southern California, it is the cheapest, only $35. After August 3rd, it goes up to, I believe, 45 So I'll be speaking there on science versus faith, also a host of other speakers, all the STR team and others. So I would encourage you to check that out at RethinkApologetics.com. Or you can go to, again, my Facebook page and see more information there. So hopefully we can connect at some of those live events. All right, so to our topic of discussion for today, and that is understanding how to ask good questions and dealing with some of these issues. So the initial reason why I want to record this is because a question came in through my Instagram channel at RyanPolly3, if you want to send in your questions, where a, a student wrote in and she said, I got into a discussion with a friend the other day about transgenders and gender identity. And she told me that there were transgenders in the Bible. And I'm very troubled by this concept as I just can't understand it. I'd love if you could address this. Thanks. So my first question is, did your friend point out a Bible verse? And she immediately came back and said, no, she didn't. But I looked it up on Google and I found this. And so she had to go out and find what her friend was even talking about. But her friend couldn't mention a Bible verse. So I think this is an important point to stop. And I am going to get to that Google site here really quick and what they did mention. But the important point is this. When someone makes a claim, they need to defend that claim. It is their responsibility to defend it. And so we, as Christians, often jump too quickly to argue for the other position. As I taught and as I teach in my tactics talk, that if someone says God doesn't exist, Christians often respond, yes, he does. And in the moment you say that, then the atheist or whoever you're talking to says, okay, prove it. And now you are left trying to prove the existence of God, and often much of what you say is just going to be shot down and rejected. Instead, if someone says God doesn't exist, they made the claim. Now you can start off by asking the question, this is the Columbo tactic, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by God? Because often the God that they don't believe in, neither do I. They might believe in this angry, mean bully that lives up in the sky with a big, long, white beard that's just judging us all the time. Well, if that's what they mean by God, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. And so I want to understand and make sure that we're talking about the same God. Now, if they go, no, I'm talking about the God of biblical Christianity. I'm talking about Yahweh. Then I'm going to ask the question, okay, you say he doesn't exist. How did you come to that conclusion? What is your evidence for the non-existence of him? Is it simply just because maybe you haven't seen something? I'd be curious to figure out what is the evidence that they are presenting. And if they present some evidence, then I am going to present the evidence for God's existence, but I'm going to do so in the way of questions. Well, have you considered the beginning of the universe? How would you explain the beginning of the universe if there is no God? 
This would be pointing towards the cosmological argument. Or I might say, how would you explain the fine-tuning and design of the universe? What would be your explanation for that, again, if there is no fine-tuner and no designer? That's the fine-tuning argument. Or the moral argument. How would you then explain objective morality? Do you believe that there's actually right and wrong things? If so, what is the objective standard by which to judge these things? And so this is a way that I teach in that talk on tactics that I learned from the book Tactics by Greg Kokel of how to respond to these objections. When I am not making the claim, I don't have to defend it. Now, as I teach, hopefully we do get to the point with our students where they are making positive claims and sharing the gospel and that they can defend those claims. But when we're just beginning, or even if we're not just in that position at that moment, simply asking good questions puts the burden of proof back on the person asking the claim, and then we don't have to have that overwhelming burden on us trying to prove the existence of God at that moment. And so hopefully this is helpful as we look at this objection. And so this came up again in other ways, but let's first go back to this one. So again, to say that there are transgenders in the Bible, uh, this troubled the student. And my first question was, how did they come to that conclusion? Did they point out a Bible verse? And the fact is that they did not. And so look, if there's no evidence of this, let's dismiss it. Now, this student did go out and Google search it and did come back with something. And so now I want to address what they came back with. The article they came back with is titled, What Does the Bible Teach About Transgender People? And this was found at thedailybeast.com, and I'll put it in a link in the description or in the blog post uh, when you get this. But the author of this article's name is Jay Michelson, and here's a few of the arguments that he makes. So the first one he says is this, quote, first, yes, in the Genesis story, God creates human beings of male and female sex, but the creation story says nothing about gender. Notice how the end of the resolution, God talks about God's design for the gender as determined by a biological sex. Where did that come from? What chapter and verse? End quote. Now, we have to recognize something first. It is only recently that we have accepted this definition in our culture where gender and sex are different. If you look up the history of these terms, you can see that sex and gender throughout history have been interchangeable. That when the Bible talks about God creating the male and female, it's talking about male sex, female sex, as well as male and female gender. It's the same thing. It was based on biology. It is not until recently that we have separated these terms where Sex is your biology and gender is what you feel or think about yourself. And so we have to recognize if we're going to go back and talk about the Genesis account, we have to look at how the words were used in that account. We cannot apply a 21st century understanding or cultural definition of gender and sex back into Genesis written thousands of years ago and say, therefore, Genesis doesn't talk about gender. It absolutely does. When it talks about God creating the male and female, that was male sex, female sex, and gender as well. These words could be interchangeable. So the author goes on and says, quote, remember that sex is not the same as gender. Definitionally, sex is about chromosomes. Gender is about cultural practices. Sex is what is between our legs. Gender is what is between our ears. My male sex means I can grow a beard. My male gender means it's societally, socially acceptable for me to do so, but not in conservative societies to wear high heels and makeup. Of course, there's nothing objectively male or female about shoes and clothes. They are aspects of gender and they are socially constructed. 
end quote. Okay, so let's look at this really quick. Again, he's defining it in this 21st century way. Now, there is an aspect of gender being socially constructed, what he says, right? In America, men don't wear skirts. That is not the gendered thing to do in America. But if you go to Scotland, they do. They wear kilts, right? And so there are aspects, right? Boys like blue, girls like pink. This is socially constructed. But I think what often happens is because there are some aspects of gender that are socially constructed or gender norms where normally in our culture, men do this and women do this. That does not mean that all gender is socially constructed. Again, he's taking that 21st century understanding of gender is what's, or sex is what's between our legs, gender is what's between our ears, what we think about ourselves versus what we actually are. Again, throughout most of human history, these words were interchangeable, and that is how it is used in Genesis. Now, he goes on to say and says, quote, now, just because the Genesis story is silent about gender doesn't mean the Bible is. In fact, the Bible presents clear gender roles aligned with sex in which women are subordinate to men. So, again, end quote right there. And, and, and it goes on again to say the Bible's generally not silent about this. Well, no, it's not. It presents it in Genesis and throughout all of Scripture. Again, you can't apply that 21st century understanding into this. So now I want to get into what he specifically says of where transgenders are in the Bible. He says this, quote, even if it is, what about those men and women who deviate from gender roles in the Bible? The patriarch Jacob, for example, is clearly gendered female. Now, I'm in my own commentary here. Really? The patriarch Jacob is clearly female? Did you guys know that? Well, here's the argument that he gives. All right, back to his quote. For example, Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, is clearly gendered female in comparison with his twin brother Esau. Esau is hairy. Jacob is smooth. Esau is a hunter. Jacob stays in the tent, which is where women stay and cooks. Esau is favored by his father, Jacob by his mom. And yet Jacob is the chosen one who becomes Israel, who fathers a nation. Of course, Jacob didn't go through hormone therapy, but the way the Bible constructs his gender identity makes it very clear that at least until his transformative nighttime wrestling match, he is gender nonconforming. All right, end quote there. Now, I just find that interesting. If Jacob is wrestling, therefore he's gendered man, uh, but everything else is women. Now, this is, I just think this is absolutely ridiculous of an argument to say that Jacob is transgender because Jacob stayed maybe at home or was not hairy. Again, I can find lots of men who are not hairy, but that doesn't mean that they're gendered women. You can find men who are cooks. Think of Gordon Ramsay, for goodness sake. Is Gordon Ramsay, would we say he's gendered female or transgender because he's a chef? Of course not, right? Even in the transgender movement today, it's about your gender identity is about what you perceive or feel about yourself. And even I would say that among them, to my knowledge, and I could be wrong on this, but to my knowledge, it's not based on what you do. Right? We would never say that just because a guy figure skates or dances is therefore female, that is actually inappropriate to say. Right? We have to recognize that people like different things no matter what their biological sex is. And so to make this argument where just because Jacob maybe cooked versus hunted or because he was smooth instead of hairy or that his mom liked him, therefore he was female is absolutely ridiculous. There is nothing in the text, right? If gender identity is based on how you feel about yourself and how you identify, there is nothing in the text of where Jacob identifies as female. It is simply a different function that he is doing and that function doesn't determine your gender. 
This author goes on to say that Deborah, the judge, performed a male societal role. Therefore, Deborah was most likely a different gender. The Apostle Paul rebelled. He says, quote, the Apostle Paul, who rebelled against the most fundamental gender role of his time, fathering children by becoming celibate. Likewise, uh, so Paul here is what he's saying, was also gender nonconforming because he went against the normal gender role of fathering children. So I'll finish with this one last quote. He, he gives some other arguments that you can read, but this is all I'm going to address. The last quote he says is this, if the Bible is our guide, then God's design for gender is a gigantic rainbow of variation, not a black and white conformity with sex, end quote. Again, I think here's the major flaw that this is doing. It's first, it's like equivocating on the word gender. It says that gender is based on what's between our ears, but then it's also based on what your gender, what your role is and and the things that you do. Uh, If it's based on what the things that you do, then it's not based on what's between your ears. And so it's interesting here that almost two different definitions are being presented of it's not what's between your legs, it's what's between your ears. But Jacob clearly could have been thinking, I'm a male, but because he was smooth, therefore he must have been female. This is ridiculous in applying these two different ways. But as I mentioned, I disagree with the definition of gender. These things are not interchangeable. So when he goes on to say that God's design is a rainbow variation, that's not true. God designed us male and female. That is our gender. Now, how you act within that gender can change, right? In fact, that some men can be construction workers and other men cook, right? But those are socially constructed roles that men like blue and girls like pink. Just because there's a boy that likes pink does not make him a girl. And I think that we would all understand this. And so this is not a rainbow of variation. There is a variation on what you're talented at and what you're gifted at, but that is not a variation of gender. The Bible is black and white. God created us male and female. That is sex and that is gender. There is no verse that I know of that has a male or female identifying as the opposite sex. That is what I think you would need in order to show that the Bible is transgender, is that identification. I don't see any verse, but even if there was, this is where another really important hermeneutical or biblical interpretation concept comes in, is that we need to understand what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. So for example, the Bible says that Solomon had many wives and concubines, or that David went and cheated with Bathsheba, But it doesn't say go and do likewise. So there are a lot of issues or stories in the Bible that are describing what the people did at that time, but it is not prescriptive in saying, now you go and do this. What we follow today are the prescriptive passages where it says, go and make disciples. You, Christians, are ambassadors, right? There are prescriptive things calling us to do a certain thing, that all the law and the prophets can be summed up as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the things that we follow. So even if there was a passage, which I know of not one, that where a person in the Bible actually identifies as the opposite sex, what you would have to do is then look and say, does the Bible say that is just what this one person did? Or does the Bible actually say you should go and do likewise? Because it's interesting. In Deuteronomy 22.5, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
Now, as I mentioned before, what exactly is men and women's clothes is socially constructed. And so if a man wears a kilt, that's not what this verse is talking about. Well, that women shouldn't wear pants? No, that's not what it's talking about. Pants is just our understanding of what happens. Women can wear that. That's not men's clothing. That's not what Deuteronomy 22 is is talking about. What you find with most scholars is that what Deuteronomy 22 uh, here is talking about is that if you wear the opposite sex's clothes so that you appear as that gender or that sex, If you are wearing it, trying to be the other thing, then that is what is wrong. That men should not put on women's clothes in order to look like women, or women should not put on men's clothes in order to look like men. The idea of men's and women's clothes, irrelevant. It's what is the goal behind it? What are you trying to achieve? Are you just wearing clothes that you like, or are you trying to look like the opposite sex? And so I find it interesting, if you're going to make the argument that the Bible actually supports transgender, how do you deal with verses like this? I don't think you can. And so what we see is this argument being made of transgenders in the Bible, I think falls flat on its face. When you finally start to say, okay, this is what it says, that the Bible supports or there's transgenders in the Bible. Okay, what verses are you talking about? Who are you talking about? And you begin to look at their stories. What you find is that they simply don't match. There is nowhere that the Bible suggests that Deborah or Paul or Jacob identified and thought between their ears, as this author defines it, that they were the opposite sex. Just because one cooked, that doesn't make you female. We don't look at all chefs today and say that they are female or gender nonconforming. Men can be chefs the same way that women can do other things, right? This is not a good argument. So hopefully, I don't know if that helped, but these are my thoughts on this. Now, second way that this came up, and I'll address really quick, I don't think I've talked about on the podcast before, is this idea that Jesus is a dying and rising God. Now, if you, like I mentioned, if you go to my YouTube channel, I'm posting some videos on this. The first video just went out today, the day that I record this, or yesterday, the day that this podcast is released. And the claim was made on Instagram, and you can go to my Instagram, and you can actually see the conversation, or my website, coffeehousequestions.com, you can see the conversation there. I've screenshot screenshot the conversation and posted it. But the argument was made that Jesus is simply just a recycled dying and rising God, like Osiris or Mithras or all these other pagan myths that came before Jesus. And I mentioned that there are three important responses that we need to remember when it comes to this objection. The first one is this, there are no resurrecting dying and rising gods before the resurrection of Jesus. Now, these stories are told that they did take place before, but what we see is that where the resurrection part, where the gods are actually dying and rising and, you know, coming back from the dead, where this gets put into the story actually starts showing up around the second or fourth century. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. And if you look at that conversation on Instagram, this is what I kept pointing out. I kept saying, please show me a pre-Jesus, documented pre-Jesus, dying and rising God. And he kept saying, well, Google the 12 dying and rising saviors. Well, yeah, if you Google them, that will be in the story. But where does this story show up in history? Is it a documented historical fact that these stories were being shared before Jesus and therefore the disciples recycled this when they came up with the story of Jesus? And the answer is no. There is no documented pre-resurrection of Jesus dying and rising God. These show up in the second to fourth century. And in fact, this person on Instagram finally did admit, yes, there is no clear evidence of this. It's simply an assertion. 
So again, if someone makes this claim, you say, how did you come to that conclusion? Can you please point me to a recycled, uh, the fact that Jesus is recycled, that there is a dying and rising God pre-Jesus? The second thing on this is this. The similarities that they mention are not similar at all if you actually look at them. Of what one story says that they were born of a virgin, Jesus is born of a virgin, oh my goodness, they're the same, is very, very different. What some stories talk about rising from the dead and what Jesus has discussed in scripture is rising from the dead are very, very different resurrections. These are not actually similar stories at all. So when you actually look at the details, what you see is that this objection online has pulled out these little tiny bits, you know, tidbits of the details saying, well, this guy, you know, died and rose from the dead and was born a virgin and on this day. And you go, oh my goodness, it looks so similar. When you actually look at the facts behind it, when you look at the explanation of what they mean by dying and rising from the dead, it is extremely different from the Jesus story. The Jesus story does not have a parallel in ancient mythology. It is extremely unique. The third point is this. Even if these stories did show up before Jesus, doesn't mean the Jesus story is false. If I were to tell you about this huge boat that made its maiden voyage uh, over the Atlantic, and as it was crossing the Atlantic, it struck an iceberg and it sank. And the problem was, is this boat was short of lifeboats, and so many people on board died. You would think I'm talking about the Titanic and the Titanic sinking. But actually, this is a story written 14 years before the Titanic sunk called The Sinking of the Titan or The Futility. And what we see is this this story, even though it is a false made-up story and it came 14 years before, it almost perfectly predicted the sinking of the Titanic. Now, because there's a fake made-up story that almost perfectly resembles the Titanic, does that mean the Titanic didn't sink? Of course not. We look at the evidence. And what we see is there is evidence for the sinking of the Titan. We know that this, the, or so the Titanic, there is no evidence for the Titan. In the same way, if you look at these mythological stories, there's no evidence that these actually took place. But the evidence of the resurrection is overwhelming. We see that the Jesus story is unique. So hopefully as you apply this to other objections that you get, when someone makes a claim, they need to defend it. You need to ask them for the evidence that they have, and then you can begin to work through that evidence. And hopefully this helps you in the future. I hope also that what I mentioned at the beginning has been an encouragement. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. I really appreciate it. Share with a friend or family member if you have enjoyed it. Help them enjoy it as well. Give it a rating on your podcasting app. And thank you again so much. Have an awesome rest of your day. Great summer in whatever you are doing. God bless. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly. Your love.